coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. OpenSSL issues major security advisories. We'll break down the details, and then we'll go into the real-world impacts of these flaws. Plus, we've got some great networking and storage questions in our feedback segment, a rock and roundup packed full of news, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 256 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on March 3rd, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as Lucky 256 goes on. Oh, and our live stream, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at scaleengine.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello there, Alan. Hello. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. So, uh, Alan, a couple of things about today's yes. episode are uh, a little unusual. First of all, for some reason, I've been looking forward to the 256 episode. It is just kind of a special number, even though it just Lands on a random date. <laughs> I know. For some reason I've been looking forward to that, but something else. Uh, for those people that are listening, I got to paint the scene really quick. Uh, so Alan is dialing in. Of course, he's got his uh, the Tetris lamp, which has reconfigured magically. And then next to the Tetris lamp, looks like looks like perhaps a remote controlled power strip. But I'm not sure, Alan. Yes. What is it exactly? Can you explain? Yes. This is. Uh, we just got. Uh, we're moving into a new co-location that has 240 volt power. So this mm -hmm. meant we needed to replace our old APC PDUs that did 120 volt. Um, we had some relatively small ones because when we started out, we had like a third of a rack or something, right? So one with like eight power outlets was enough, right? And it had a Ethernet port, so you can uh, SSH into it or go to a little website and turn each of the ports on and off so that you can reboot a server that's misbehaving. Yeah, sure. That's um, very handy when you're re yeah. working remotely. Yeah, and um, what else do we do with it? Oh, it has a little uh, screen on it where it outputs how many amps you're using, which is useful to know if you're getting close to blowing a breaker. Yeah, oh, nice. Uh, yeah, so we had one of those in our first co-location, and it was nice. Uh, it was actually provided by the co-location people. So we're like, ah, oh, awesome. Uh, so when we moved, we're like, we bought two of those exact ones and stuck them in the rack. And we're like, yay, we're good. Mm -hmm. uh, and eventually we added a third one because we had more equipment and we needed more ports. Um, but for the new co-location, it's 240 volt power. And yep. so it takes a different PDU because everything's different. Ah. Uh, and so we got this one, which is the AP8659NA3. <laughs> uh but the big thing is that uh, the outlets are different because, uh, well, not specific to being 240 volt, but here, let me show you. Okay. Oh, we get a show and tell. That's cool. So you can kind of see here. Yeah. Uh, you can see they actually look like the power things on the back of your computer. Yeah, they're the like the uh, the female version of the Molex, yeah. or not Molex, yeah. but the standard uh, so, power. So they look like the one end of the, the yeah. cable you normally plug into the wall and then into the back of your computer. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, so basically, if you've ever seen one of those uh, uh, power extension cables that you can use to make one of those cables longer, or the original use for those, if you remember back to really old computers, uh, the power supply would have you know the regular inlet, but it would also have an outlet of this type, which you could then daisy chain to your monitor. Yes. So your monitor would automatically turn off. Yeah, when you yeah, I remember that. Off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and <laughs> so you wouldn't take all your outlets. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, uh, it's basically that type, uh, although you can actually see here is one of the higher uh, amperage version ones, which, you know, instead of going up and down, they kind of go right, sideways. Right, the sideways plugs, yeah. Yeah, 
but basically it's a similar thing. And what's uh, and the so, LCD screen on there read out to you? Because that's kind of neat. Uh, yeah, so the LCD screen here. Well, and that's e- I can see Ethernet on there and USB, it looks like. Yeah, so it's got an uh, Ethernet port and a USB port, uh, a serial thing. Ah. Uh, uh, is that what the phone uh, jack is? Is serial? This this is serial. Yeah. This is this is the network. This one uh, is for a modular connector for temperature and humidity sensors. Cool. That you can hook up to it. And these two are actually more Ethernet ports, where you can use it to daisy chain these together. So instead of needing one Ethernet cable to each one of your power bars, you plug one oh, into that's the first one, lovely, and then the first one into the second one, second one, and third one, uh, and it, they basically all work together in one control interface that way, and you don't need a whole bunch of extra cabling. Right. Well, because, you know, a lot of people, when they're adding these to a rack or something, they didn't really plan to have uh, yeah, Ethernet. So they had power. one, it was fine, and then yeah. they added a second one. Yeah. Or they had two for A and B power, and they need a third one. And it's like, and a fourth one, it's like, well, well how are we going to get more cables in there? So how, does, how much does something like that cost, and is it, is it prohibitive for doing a lot of them? Uh, well, so this is a, a quite beefy one. It has 20 of the, uh, or 21 of the C... 14 outlets and three of these bigger ones. Uh, and brand new, it's in the $1,200 to $1,300 range. Now, this was this is the beefiest one they have, or the, the most advanced one they have. Okay. So your basic one, power goes in the top, and it has no LCD, no Ethernet, whatever. It's just uh, basically a giant power strip. That's the basic one. Then they have a metered one, which is the basic one, but you get a screen, and it tells you the total power draw you're using. And when, it, and when it tells you, obviously it tells you on the screen, but also in like in a web UI too, I would imagine, right? Uh, it depends. We'll get to the web UI. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> so there uh, is some of them that have that. Yeah. So, so basic has nothing and metered has, tells you how much it's using. And I think, yes, it does have a web interface so you can monitor it remotely. Then you have a switched PDU. Oh. So that'll give you this metering and the, through the interface with SSH or SNMP or uh, web browser, you can turn each port on and off. Right? So that's uh, a switched PDU. So if you want specific port control, that's called switched. Yes. And so that's what we had before. Now, the, this one is the very top of the line. It's the metered by port switched PDU. Ooh. So we get the power usage drop from everything we plug into it. That is very nice. Yes. So we'll be able to tell not only how much power we're using, but which machine is actually sucking up all the power. I wonder if... I wonder with if with that kind of information, if you could spot potential warnings or problems, like maybe a machine all of yep. a sudden is pulling more power because its fans are kicked way up because something right. inside has it's failed. Working harder, or you know, this machine isn't working hard enough. <laughs> yeah. What's really interesting is maybe graphing this information. Yeah. And seeing, you know, does time of day usage actually affect our power draw, or is it kind of static all the what, time? Uh, what's available to you uh, for? Is there any kind of facilities, or like SNMP or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, SNMP get... is built in. Uh, okay. We already have graphs of our older ones, so we assume that it will ah. take very little effort to get graphing of this newer one. So historical data remains intact, Alan. Uh, that, kind of. In a sense. We won't, we won't use the historical data because it's all going to be different. But. So uh, I also kind of teased, but there's really a third reason why today's episode is, uh, is kind of fun for us and kind of unique, too, is uh, we're doing a double episode today because, Alan, I don't know if I remember, but you're going um, you're going to be leaving soon. Like, you're going to be gone yes, next I week, right? I leave on Monday uh, yeah. and come back the following Monday. 
for Asia BSD Con in oh, Tokyo. Oh, 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 that's one of the good ones. Yes. You're gonna get a new. It's you're gonna good. get new yeah. gadgets, Alan. Come on, be honest. Yes. I'm going to get some more of those, and I'm going to get JT some more of those, and just in general get some more of those. So, what's the big thing you're looking forward to in Asia BSD Con? Asia BSD Con 2016. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, one of them. Um, so I get there on Tuesday night. And uh, I'll meet up with some friends and have dinner. Mm-hmm. That'll be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wednesday, uh, Chris Moore and I, and the, but it sounds like it's going to be a giant group of other people, are going to go shopping. Oh, cool. Get the gadgets. Uh, yes. You know, normally, normally I don't get excited about going shopping. No. But <laughs> this particular case, <laughs> lots of fun. Yeah. Uh, Thursday is the FreeBSD, first day of the FreeBSD Developer Summit. Uh, which I'll be doing that. Mm. Although in the evening, I will take a break from that and go to take a tutorial on uh, using Dtrace uh, to debug FreeBSD. Oh, that's going to be fascinating. I I Uh, would love to hear your thoughts on that when you get back. Hmm. And then second day, uh, more Dev Summit. uh, And then splitting my time somehow (laughs) between the tutorial and BeehiveCon. Uh, which is uh, something we've done in, in Tokyo yeah. for the last three years about uh, BSD hypervisor. Yeah. Although this year it will also include Xenon FreeBSD and VMM, the OpenBSD uh, version of something like Beehive. Huh. I didn't I uh, didn't realize. I mean, so what, what what's the motivation to have Zen on FreeBSD when Beehive is getting so far along now? Is it just well, because there's uh, so much out Zen there market-wise? Kind of- Zen kind of started a little bit before Beehive, I think, or sure. before Beehive looked like it. Oh, you mean uh, the port into FreeBSD? Yeah, because, ah. yeah, so for Zen, it was, well, we already have the software. We just got to port it. It's not very much work. And there must be some market advantage to the fact that there's a lot of Zen installations out in the world that would mean yeah, moving order. like, hmm, do I want to use ZFS for my Zens? I had assumed yes. it was a Linux kernel-level technology that would be very hard to move over, so. Apparently not. Yeah, I bet that'll be really interesting to go to. Yeah, so that, uh, that's been working for a while. Actually, uh, yeah. at, at FuzzDem, I saw... Live migration, suspend resume with ZFS snapshots, uh, <laughs> everything. It's fully integrated. Uh, sure. The only thing that doesn't work on FreeBSD yet, I think, is hardware passed through, and that's being worked on. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So, yes, uh, the funny thing is that Zen, while it seemed like it kind of came out of nowhere around the same time as Beehive, uh, because it was pretty much already done, uh, it was able to get the kind of eclipse right. Beehive on, on features kind of at a certain right, point. Right, because a lot of the Zen Although, stuff's already written. Yeah, and a lot of the, you know, uh, tools like libvert already work. You don't right. have to do anything special. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, Beehive had, does have its own advantages uh, in the more debugging side, and uh, partly maybe from a security perspective of just not having any emulation that can get screwed up, like a floppy disk. Uh huh. You know, almost everything has that QMU floppy disk in it. Yeah, and yeah. We've talked about that before the on the show. Yeah. yeah. And Beehive just was like, well, we don't need floppy disk anymore. So it's so a modern. It's more. Mo- it feels like yeah. it's more modern. Like it's well, written. It's basically, they in order to save time while building it, they basically sure. made it only sure. do what was absolutely necessary and to offload everything it could to the CPUs, like hardware virtualization. Of features. course, which which is going to minimize attack surface and obviously yep. minimize complications. Yeah, uh, but we're hoping for a big announcement at BeehiveCon about more Beehive stuff. So that's concurrent with Asia BSD Con. Uh, so you really are going to well, be bouncing that, around. All that stuff is happening the two days before the conference starts. <laughs> <laughs> so while technically kind of part of the conference, like the tutorials and the, and the dev summits, the actual conference doesn't start until Saturday. Wow. Uh, where there'll be two days of talks. Uh, on the Sunday, I will be presenting my paper on... Uh, Booting from encrypted disks using FreeBSD, which is uh, 
stuffing a minimal version of the FreeBSD encryption driver down into the boot code hmm. so that uh, you can decrypt the bootloader off of your encrypted disk and boot from it. Hmm. That's uh, a so neat that, one. Yeah, so that your um, if you're using ZFS boot environments where you can have basically multiple concurrent versions of the operating system that share your home directory and so on, it's kind of like dual booting but different. Huh. Um, so you can have that even if your disk is encrypted, which currently you can't do. Uh, so just doubling back on the DSTAT thing, do you think coming away from that, do you suspect you might find ways to look at your your infrastructure and say, I mean, can DSTAT be used to sort of find What's ways this? to... Detrace. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. sorry. Yeah, right. DSTAT is totally different thing. Detrace. Do you think Detrace could be used to find like ways to improve performance in an overall infrastructure? Or is Detrace primarily oh, yes. going to be for debugging and, and watching something as, as you're building? So I... Uh, uh, it's, it's really about seeing what's happening on your system. So, for okay. example, uh, here in Panchara, who we interviewed on BSD Now mm -hmm. a couple months ago, uh, he and I worked together using Dtrace, and we're actually able to see, you know, watching the TCP congestion window on a connection going up and down and, and figuring out why I wasn't getting 10 gigabits over my, uh, between my ZFS machine and, and another machine over SSH. So that's a perfect example. Yeah, and so it... Uh, and this this tutorial specifically is kind of geared towards your sysadmin, you know, maybe you know a little bit of programming, but really this is how you can use Dtrace to find out what's happening in your system. And uh, the first time I used it much beyond just using a couple of scripts that Heron gave me for the TCP stuff uh, was now recently playing with ZFS and, and dealing, uh, trying to figure out why it was behaving the way it was with regards to uh, the cache. You can, you know... Put a little hook so it says every time ZFS checks how much memory is available, print out the stats. Uh, or, you know, let me know every time ZFS gives some memory back to the operating system. Or every time it wants to but can't. And, and you know, makes it very easy to see what's going on in the system. Yeah, I, I just, I find it to be interesting. The reason why it was kind of crossing my mind is we're watching the whole, like we covered last week, uh, ZFS and the Software Conservancy and Canonical, and I think Dtrace is high up on that list of tools that are CDDL yep. licensed that they'd like to move over to Linux. So, well, well somehow Oracle has moved Dtrace onto their unbreakable Linux, right? So, yeah. yeah. So it's like, did they just change the license or not? Or are they implying something by doing so because they're distributing it? Yeah. yeah. But then they're like, but for them it's like well it's ours so we just gave ourselves a different license. Or I, I I don't know that that's a it's an interesting uh, well it mm. turns out when it comes to Oracle and licensing there's a few interesting questions involved. <laughs> yeah, who would have thought? Uh, <laughs> if you want to know more about the ZFS licensing thing, check out this week's episode of BSD Now. Oh, uh, we also on top of the Software Conservancy, the um, Software Freedom Law Center has entered the equation. Uh, right. And the Linux SCSI subsystem maintainer has some interesting thoughts. Oh, I will check it out. Yeah, I've, I read uh, Eblen Moglen, or how you say his name. I read his thoughts uh, recently, and, and so that's I'll catch that episode. <laughs> All right, Alan. So we have something we haven't really done before, I don't think, is we're going to take a big story and just really deep dive across the whole news segment on TechSnap. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of a multifaceted story. So. Yeah. And so we thought to make room for that, I wanted to start right now by mentioning our friends at DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code SNAPOcean to get a $10 credit at DigitalOcean. Then you can go build a rig up in their cloud infrastructure, and it starts at $5 a month. So if you use the promo code SNAPOcean, you could use that for two months for absolutely free. Mm -hmm. In less than 55 seconds, you're pricing, I mean, at $5 a month. In less than 50, 
$5 a month. That's cheaper than a burger from Five Guys. We were talking about Five Guys on the pre-show. That's cheaper than a burger from Five Guys at $5 a month. And here's what you'll get. 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, a blazing fast CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And then they have plans that just step right up from there. Very straightforward pricing, very straightforward upgrades. It's all what you would expect. You can check it out at DigitalOcean. It's really Dude, nice. The bandwidth they give you for the money is really good. That is. A terabyte at $5 a month is yeah. is really... And, of course, it steps up from there, too. It's like, that's the, ter- the terabyte of transfer is the starting transfer, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is great. <laughs> really well, great. And, and unlike a lot of virtual servers that you rent, it actually has a gigabit connection to the internet, not yeah. 100 megabit. Nice and fast. And they got data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Germany, and I believe... Yes, just announced. Yeah, there's a new one. Uh, It's in India, right? It's in Bangalore, India. Yeah, Bangalore. Yeah. Wow. There you go. Now now I kind of want to drop it over there. Getting the the pricing they have over here for over there will be really interesting. Uh Ah, that's very true. Because the price we currently pay at Scale Engine for a server in India is slightly ridiculous. Yeah, good point. Good point. I love DigitalOcean's control panel. Mm -hmm. They have a great interface, a very intuitive API. I don't know if we've really talked about it on TechSnap, but they have this HTML5 console that basically lets you get right down mm-hmm. into watching the OS boot or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, on BSD Now, we've covered tutorials on how to take whatever OS they gave you mm-hmm. and replace it with a different OS that they don't offer. Right, because you're getting console access. Yeah, so you just get down there and be like, oh, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put NetBSD on my droplet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's also how uh, I know folks are going from like Debian to Arch as well and things like that. Yep. Uh, console access is great. It also means because it's uh, it's not Flash or anything like that, you can use it on any device without having to use Flash, which is very, very nice. So use the promo code SNAPOcean, get the $10 credit. And while you're there, if you've been affected by the PAR shutdown, we've been talking about this on Quarter Radio, there is a DigitalOcean guide on how to run a PAR server on Ubuntu 14.04. What's PARS? Parse is sort of like a, uh, it's like a whole platform as a service backend infrastructure that developers have used for their apps. And like it's it's everything from like database and API calls for kind of like uh, all kinds of state information. All of it can be right. stored in Parse, and then you, they give you all of the the like the front end kit to like build it around the app, make it really easy to deploy your application. But then cool. when they shut down, you're yeah. kind of left high and dry. However, they kind of did a good guy move. Parse did, and they're like, well, here we're going to open source the server, so you can migrate to this. And this is a guide that tells you how to send that to, to spin that Parse server up. Also, our buddy Michael Dominic from Coda Radio, you can check out uh, Buccaneer.io. Or check out Buccaneer, just Google search Buccaneer Tech. He's doing, also he's offering a, a, a parse migration. But I think it's really nice of DigitalOcean to sort of jump on that. You know, that's sort of something that just came up in the news just a few yeah. days ago. And they're, they're already on top of it. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. It's a great service. And it's, a, it's an example of how you can get a $5 droplet and take it to the next level with their one-click deployments and their great community guides. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. So we dropped, I think it. I think we dropped the notice uh, either in the feedback segment or in the roundup last week. We're like, hey, yep. there's going to be a big security update coming. You're going to need to patch your S. We don't know all the details yet, but prepare yourselves. Yep. Well, it dropped, and uh, I, I girded the loins, Alan, and I'm ready because I believe it involves OpenSSL, which means... There could be trouble afoot. What's going oh, on? Yes. So OpenSSL has released new versions of the software, uh, 102G and 101S, to address a number of vulnerabilities, including CVE 2016, uh, what do we got here? 702, 703, 704, 
So yeah. Uh, so we have some interesting ones here. The first one is uh, super high priority. It's called Drown. Uh, we'll talk a bit more about it later, but it's basically a cross-protocol attack on TLS, which is the modern uh, HTTPS crypto, using SSL v2, which is the really old thing that mm. we shouldn't be using. <laughs> uh, but sometimes it's kind of on by accident. So yeah, they say the cross-protocol attack was discovered that could lead to decryption of TLS sessions by using a service supporting SSL v2 and export uh, cipher suites as a uh, Blackenbacher RSA padding oracle. Note that traffic between clients and non-vulnerable servers can be decrypted provided another server supporting SSLv2 and export ciphers, uh, even if it's running a different protocol, shares the same RSA key. So if you add the same SSL certificate on two servers, even if one of them is super locked down and got all the latest stuff, if one of them doesn't, uh, you can get the key and decrypt the traffic from both. Mm. Lovely. So, yeah. So even if you're all patched up on your one server, if you forgot about the other server and it shares the same certificate, you're screwed. Mm -hmm. Sounds like it. Yep. Uh, then they have uh, next one here is uh, divide and conquer session key recovery. I like that. The divide and conquer, huh? Yes. Uh, <laughs> this issue only affects version of OpenSSL prior to March 19th of 2015, at which time this code was refactored to address a different vulnerability. So hmm. it turns out while they fixed uh, the, some code in March of 2015, they accidentally fixed another vulnerability. Yeah. <laughs> uh, S2SRVR.C did not enforce the clear key length uh, being zero for non-export ciphers. Uh, if clear key bytes are present for these ciphers, they displace the encrypted key bytes. This leads to an efficient divide-and-conquer key recovery attack. Uh, if an eavesdropper has intercepted an SSL v2 handshake, they can use the server as an oracle to determine the master key, using only 16 connections to the server in negligible computation. And then they get the entire key. Uh, more importantly, this leads to a more effective version of the drown attack that we talked about a second ago, and we'll get into more detail later, uh, that effectively, uh, that's effective against non-export cipher suites and requires no significant computation. Uh, this issue uh, affects OpenSSL version 102, 101L, 100Q, 098ZE, and all earlier versions. Uh, this issue was reported to OpenSSL in February 10th of 2016. We're not done yet. No, I know. I'm waiting. Next, we have Cash Bleed. Okay. Cash Bleed, huh? That sounds yes. nice. Uh, so this one, uh, while given a low severity compared to the other two, which were high, uh, this is a side channel attack on modular exponentiation. Cash Bleed. Yes, uh, a side channel attack was found that makes use of cache bank conflicts on the Intel Sandy Bridge microarchitecture, no. which could lead to the recovery of your entire RSA key, even if it's 4096 bits. <laughs> the ability to exploit this issue is limited as it relies on the attacker who has control of code in a thread running on the same hyper-threaded core as the victim thread, which is performing the decryptions. Okay. So they have to be on the same machine as you. Although it's theoretically possible to do this... Uh, with one VM attacking another VM on the same host, but maybe harder than on the same machine. Uh, mitigations against this were added to 102G and 101S. And we'll get more into details of how that one actually works 
uh, later in the show as well. Uh, and then we have a bunch of more uh, moderate and low-end ones. The uh, Bleckenbacher attack uh, is in here. It says, this issue uh, is severity moderate. Uh, only affects version of OpenSSL prior to March 19th, 2015, at which time the code was refactored to deal with a different vulnerability. Mm. Um, the S2SRVR.C overwrites the wrong bytes in the master key when applying the Bleckenbacher protection for export crypto suites. So uh, I'll explain what that is later. Okay. Sorry. I just keep referring to later, but this yeah. is a huge story, and I can't explain it all out of order. No, we're setting it up. Setting <laughs> yeah. it up. Uh, this provides the uh, Bleckenbacher Oracle and could potentially allow more efficient variants of the drowned attack. This issue affects uh, all versions of OpenSSL prior to March 19th of 2015. Okay. Uh, then we got some more uh, low severity ones here. We got uh, double free in the DSA code. So if you use DSA private keys instead of RSA, a double free bug was discovered uh, and could lead to a denial of service attack or memory corruption for applications that receive DSA private keys from untrusted sources. Mm. This scenario is considered rare, okay. and that's why it's got a low vulnerability. Uh, this issue was reported to OpenSSL February 7th by Adam Langley of Google and BoringSSL mm. uh, while using libfuzzer. The error uh, was fixed by a developer of OpenSSL. So an interesting result from the BoringSSL project. Yeah, well, they were just running their uh, sure. libfuzz against it, but yeah. yeah. Uh, a memory leak in the SRP database lookup. Uh, the SRP user database lookup method, SRP vbase get by user, has confusing memory management semantics. The return pointer hmm. was sometimes newly allocated and sometimes owned by the caller. The calling code had no way to distinguish between these two cases. Specifically, the SRP server that uh, configured a secret seed to hide valid login information are vulnerable to a memory leak. An attacker connecting with an invalid username can cause a memory leak of around 300 bytes per connection. Servers that do not uh, configure SRP or configure SRP to, uh, but do not require a seed are not vulnerable. In Apache, the seed directive is known as SSL SRP unknown user seed. <laughs> to mitigate the memory leak, the seed handled uh, in get by user is now disabled even if the user is configured to seed. Applications are advised to migrate to the SRP VBase get one by user because uh, they changed the API. However, note that OpenSSL makes no strong guarantees about the indistinguishability of valid and invalid logins. In particular, the computations are currently not carried out in constant time. Uh, so this is a constant time is something you hear about a lot in cryptography. Uh, oftentimes, figuring out that something's invalid means you, or if you're trying to do math on like the good thing and the bad thing at the same time, uh, the bad one will be invalid and will finish a lot sooner because as soon as you find it's invalid, mm. you stop mm. doing the work, right? Mm -hmm. But that allows an attacker to know, you know, imagine if when you tried an invalid username, it returned after, you know, 0.1 seconds saying invalid password. But if you try a valid username, it took like 0.5 seconds because it actually was, you know, trying the password with the doing strong crypto or whatever. That means you very easily you'd be able to just scan a whole bunch of different usernames and quickly figure out which usernames exist and which ones don't. Uh, so in cryptography, a lot of uh, operations are done what's called constant time, where it will always take the same amount of time to do this, no matter if it succeeds or fails, uh, because it will basically just wait uh, and make sure it always takes at least this long so that uh, you, the an observer won't be able to tell whether it worked or not by just by looking at how long it took. Mm -hmm. uh, another one here, the BN hex to BN and BN deck to BN... <laughs> Null pointer dereference and heap corruption. 
sorry, in the uh, hex to binary uh, function, the number of hex digits is calculated by using an integer, uh, the value i. Later, the bn expand function is called with a value of i times 4. For very large values of i, this could lead to bn expand not allocating any memory because i times 4 uh, would be such a big number that it would overflow and become negative. Uh, this can cause the internal big num data field uh, as null leading to a subsequent null pointer dereference. For very large values of i, the calculation i times 4 could be a positive value smaller than i. Because if you overflow all the way, right, so you're, you know, overflowing off the top, go down to the biggest negative number, and come up again and actually end up at a positive number, but less than the original number that mm -hmm. you're trying to multiply by. Hmm. Uh, in this case, memory is allocated to uh, an internal big num data field, but it is insufficiently sized, leading to a heap corruption. Because you end up allocating, you know, four bytes of memory and then writing 100 bytes to it. And so everything after the memory you allocated gets clobbered. Um, there's a similar issue in the decimal to binary uh, function. Uh, this could have security consequences if the hex to binary and decimal to binary are ever called by user applications with very large untrusted decimal or hexadecimal or decimal data. This is anticipated to be a rare occurrence, but they're just guessing at that. Mm -hmm. um, all OpenSSL internal use of these functions use data that is not expected to be untrusted, i.e. config file data or application command line arguments. If users develop applications uh, that generate config file data based on untrusted data, then it is possible that this could lead to security consequences. So this wait, is anticipated okay. to be rare. If the users, okay, hold on. So, so the config file data application, if users developed applications generate config file data based on untrusted data, then it is possible. Yeah. What does that mean, untrusted? So, uh, OpenSSL in the function assumes that the good guy admin wrote the config file. If your application uses the config file that you let the users decide what some of the options are, uh, they could put a really big number in there and cause it to do bad things. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, so the other one here is in uh, uh, fixed memory issues in bioprintf. So if you know anything about C, you know one of the most basic things is printf, mm. which allows you to print out you basically you write what's called a format string. So you lay mm -hmm. out the text how you want it, and basically each variable you want is percent sign and then a symbol. And the symbol indicates what type it is, right? So percent D is a decimal number, or percent S is a string, or you know, percent X prints in hexadecimal and so on. Uh, the internal format string function used in processing a percent %s format string in the bioprintf function could overflow while calculating the length of a string and cause an out-of-band read when printing very large strings. Additionally, the internal uh, doAPRoutch function uh, can attempt to write to an out-of-bound memory location at an offset from a null pointer. In the event of memory allocation failure, ah, in uh, one or OpenSSL 102 and below, this could be caused where the size of a buffer to be allocated is greater than the maximum size integer. I, this would be in processing a very long percent %s format string. Memory leaks could also occur. Uh, the first issue may mask the second issue dependent on compiler behavior. Oh. Uh, these problems could enable attackers with very large amounts of untrusted data is passed to a printf function. If applications use these functions in this way, then they could be vulnerable. OpenSSL itself uses these functions when printing out human-readable dumps of ASN.1 data. Therefore, applications that print uh, this data could be vulnerable if the data is from an untrusted source. OpenSSL command line applications could 
also be vulnerable when they print out ASN1 data, uh, or if untrusted data is passed to a command line argument. So, you know, if your script uh, allows the user to submit a form and then you run OpenSSL commands based on that, they could cause this to happen. Hmm. Uh, also, I've seen recently when I went and did, uh, renewed an SSL certificate, um, when I gave them the certificate request form, they actually read it and give me information out of it back on the on the form. And so that means they were obviously running some command to read it in the background. Ah, so, so I wonder if yeah. I made a big invalid certificate, if I could right. uh, crash their own SSL. <laughs> That's what I was just thinking. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Sounds yeah. like they must be doing that. Yep. Uh, and I think that's all of them. That's just a quick check. Uh, cross domain, yep. Divide, conquer, double yep, free. Yep, the printf function yep. looks like the last one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, we've covered all the vulnerabilities they fixed. <laughs> uh, and just another reminder, as uh, in their previous announcements, OpenSSL version 1.0.1, which is what a lot of people are using, will cease being supported December 31st, 2016. No security updates for that version will be provided after that date. Okay. Uh, if you're using OpenSSL version 098 or 100, those already ended in December of 2015. Uh, so they won't get patches for this, and you need to upgrade. <sighs> So that's the practical. That's the practical. That's what's yep. been announced. Now we're going to talk about the implications and uh, some of the broader impact of that. First, yep. I want to mention our friends at Ting. So go to techsnap.ting.com to support this here show. This is a great mobile service if you're in the U.S. No contract, no early termination fees, and you only pay for what you use. Your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. And they just add them all up, whatever bucket you fall into, that's what you pay. It's a flat $6 a month for the actual line. So you can have as many lines as you want. And in fact, uh, there's been some independent studies that have shown if you have more than 10 lines, you're guaranteed to save money with things. It's, it's like locked in. Now, uh, it's specifically in small business situations too, where perhaps most of your employees are spending the day where there's Wi-Fi. This has really been, once I moved to Ting, I, I kind of gamified how I use my phone in the sense that I've set my podcast players and Google Photos to back up when I'm on Wi-Fi. Uh, I use my data connection uh, on, my, on my cellular device. Uh, it's, it's supplementary. Uh, I have it as a, it's there as a, as a, as a backup because I can do SIP calls. I can do Skype calls. I can do Telegram messages with voice memos. And of course, there's Hangouts. You know, there's Hangouts too. Uh, I don't use that one as much, but some people do, and so I have it there for compatibility. And what I love about it is that works across Wi-Fi or my network. That I and, and Ting has GSM or CDMA. I primarily use the GSM network these days, and so for me, it means wherever I'm at, whether I'm on my mobile network or I'm on the Wi-Fi network, all of the methods to contact me remain the same. And whenever I'm on I'm on I'm on Wi-Fi, that phone is almost damn near free for me. That's what I love about Ting. And it's really mobile that is done differently. Since there's no contract, there's really no risk if you want to try it out for a bit, and it doesn't work for you. There's no early termination fee. In fact, if you're in a duopoly contract right now, they have an early termination relief program, which you can find out more about on their site. Customer service actually rocks with Ting. I hate customer service with all the other ones. And Ting has an excellent dashboard to balance all of it out. Go check them out right now, too, on their blog. Go to techsnap.ting.com to support this show. Get a $25 discount, techsnap.ting.com. And then when you land there, go look at the blog. They just did an update about new international calling. So if I wanted to give Alan a call, now I know. Now I know what's up. If I'm, or if, you know, if Alan ended up picking up a Ting phone for the times he's down here visiting us in JB, which I'm sure will be all the time soon. I don't. I don't know. Uh, then he would have. He would have an idea of what he would look. Like. Hey, look at Canada right there. 
Look at, geez. One cent. One cent a minute. That's Instead not of, bad. What, it used to be 15. Yeah, they did. A, that's a huge drop. So they have yep. more information about that on their blog. Also, great phones. Everything from like really nice functional feature phones. A Samsung M400, $47, ships today, no contract, no early termination fee. And because this one's so cheap, they'll just give you $25 in service credit for your line. Now, the mm-hmm. average Ting phone per line is about $23 a month, depending on how much you use it. It's somewhere in there. So they're going to give you a $25 credit, right? So that's going to pay for more than your first month of Ting service when you get the Samsung M400. Now, if you want something a little fancier, I would highly recommend looking now at the Nexus 5. When you go to techsnap.ting.com, you get our TechSnap discount, $190, and the Nexus 5 does CDMA or GSM, which is great with Ting, so you can pick and choose. I love that. That's a super power user feature. Plus, you get the latest Android. The Nexus 5 is still a great phone. Of course, they've got the 5X, they've got the 6P, they've got the iPhones, they've got a sale right now on the S6. But look at this, $190 for the Nexus 5? Get the updates right from Googs. Ting doesn't like get in the way of the updates. You get a great phone for nothing, with no contract, no early termination, and you own it. It's unlocked. It's yours. TechSnap.Ting.com. Go there, support the show, learn more about Ting, and get yourself a discount. TechSnap.Ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Thank you, Ting. Okay. So I've seen a few different articles. We've got, it's got its own domain name and everything, Alan. I mean, this is happening. Uh, this OpenSSL, these, the problems with OpenSSL, OpenSSL, the big real meta issue is everybody's using it. Uh, commercial, uh, yeah. uh, hobbyists, people that have stood up a website five years ago and left alone, everybody's using it, so the impact is, is pretty major, right? Yeah, uh, and it's kind of, you know, the problem we see with monocultures, right? When there's only one program that does this, uh, that's popular, uh, it means every time there's a problem, it's kind of a huge deal. Right. And so, you know, even though we have some competing things like uh, Amazon has S2N, which is a signal to noise, it only replaces kind of the API side. It still ends up using OpenSSL for the crypto in the background. Uh, so, you know, while it may mean that it, using uh, S2N means you won't have this problem because you've disabled SSL v2, uh, it doesn't mean that you don't have the vulnerable version of OpenSSL in your system and some app might still use it or something. So, Absolutely. And, and more and more, too, on the Linux side. Uh, it is becoming more common to statically link and bundle the libraries with Linux applications. In fact, there's an app image project. Docker is all about this. There are tons of, of examples now on the Linux desktop where there could be old versions of OpenSSL sitting around for a long time, even when the base OS is being updated. And and end users may so or may not be aware. The update. Your OpenSSL package and your package manager right. says it's, it's up to date. Uh, but... That app over there is using its own different version that's not good enough. Or that container. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, more than 11 million websites and email servers uh, that were scanned so far uh, are protected by TLS, or the Transferred Layer Security Protocol, are vulnerable to a newly discovered low-cost attack that decrypts sensitive communication in a matter of hours and in some case almost immediately. Hmm. Uh, So basically this means that an attacker monitoring in the middle... Uh, could decrypt all of the traffic. So that means when you go to your bank's website and log in and do a transfer, they could see your username, your password, account numbers, the amount of money, everything. Uh, You know, everything is over SSL nowadays, so your email, they'll see your username, password, the emails, everything. Uh, Lots and lots of different things that could go back. 
Yeah, lots of, and lots of uh, lots of things that are that are built like uh, for mobile now, too. Like lots of apps. That's a that's a huge area. I was uh, thinking about this too for for some different things. And so you look at now OpenSSL is one example, but there's lots of other examples too. Eleven million websites, though. I think that's the point to sort of underscore. Eleven million websites, and that's just what they did in the scan. Uh, and it doesn't even count all of the things like email servers or messaging servers or IRC servers, right? That are also all using it. So it's uh, eleven million websites is the tip of the iceberg, my friend. Yeah, uh, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> so the researchers have dubbed this vulnerability DROWN, okay. uh, D-R-O-W-N, which stands for Decrypting RSA with Obsolete and Weakened Encryption. All right. God, it's got itself a name. And so it's got it's, itself uh, a logo, too. DrownAttack.com. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a padlock with a crack in it being floating in some water. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's cute. And it's yeah. not over the top like Harpleed was. Yes. Uh, a little less markety, more informationy. Yes, uh, but they got the uh, tool to check for it, the paper, and some Q and A. Yeah, to give them credit, that is at the very, very top of the page. So they're making, they're really making something out of this. And then down here well, at the bottom, this one, it's uh, you know, it's backed by a paper instead of a yes. company trying to sell something. But that's the big difference, isn't it? Yeah. And you can really see it. Mm-hmm. So uh, the attack works against TLS-protected communications that rely on the RSA crypto system, which is pretty much everything, well, when the key is exposed even indirectly through SSLv2, which is a TLS precursor that was retired almost two decades ago because of crippling weaknesses. So why is it still being used? Um, the vulnerability allows an attacker to decrypt an intercepted TLS connection by repeatedly using SSLv2 to make connections to a server. Uh, in this process, the attacker learns a few bits of information about the encryption key each time. While many security experts believe the removal of SSLv2 support from browsers and email clients prevented abuse of, leg- of this legacy protocol, mm. uh, some misconfigured TLS implementations still tacitly support the legacy protocol when end users specifically request it. Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. So while it's been changed so that it won't ever auto-negotiate it, it will, if you specifically ask for it and only it, then it can still give it to you. And so you can use this to repeatedly connect to the server and get a little bit of the key each time ah. until you've got most of the key, and now you can decrypt everything. I, I now, turns out, if you combine this with other attacks, uh, like me using the export-grade encryption instead of the newer stuff, uh-huh. you get more of the key each time and have to do it less. Oh, thanks, export-grade encryption. Thanks. Yes. Uh, interestingly, LibreSSL is not affected by Drown because all support for SSLv2 was removed a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say, recent scans of the internet at large show that more than 5.9 million web servers comprising 17% of all HTTPS-protected machines directly support SSLv2 still. Uh, the same scan revealed that at least about a million TLS-protected email servers also support that insecure protocol. Uh, that's a troubling finding, given that nearly uh, the widely repeated advice is that SSLv2 support for Secure Socket Layer version 2 uh, should be disabled on everything. So we've been telling people to disable SSLv2 for years, mm. and yet there's 6 million web servers and 1 million email servers that are definitely still doing it. And those are just of the ones that were in the scan. Yes. Uh, more trouble still, even when a server doesn't allow SSLv2 connections, it may still be susceptible to attack if the underlying RSA key pair is reused on a different server that does support the old protocol. So if you have two servers that are using the same certificate because they're on the same domain or something, sure. uh, 
and one of them is vulnerable, you can use it to get the key and then attack the traffic from any of the servers that share that key. Or it means even if you've followed all the instructions and the best practice guide and you have your Nginx or Apache locked down just perfectly to only use the right stuff, if you haven't done the same to your email server on the same machine that shares the same certificate, you might as well have not bothered. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. True. Yep. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, so even a lockdown server with tightened up security can be compromised if it shares a certificate with a, a less secure server. I've actually seen this with my bank. Um, when I went into my browser settings and removed support for a bunch of uh, older crypto algorithms and stuff, all of a sudden images and stuff wouldn't load on my bank's website. And it turns out that they're, uh, for that stuff, they were behind a load balancer that only supported some really old crypto. But because it was the same website, they had the same SSL or certificate, right? So if they haven't fixed that yet, uh, it may be possible to use that to learn the private hmm. key and decrypt banking traffic. So other interesting thing with this is say you're the NSA and you've been recording traffic for the last couple of years. Except for in the cases where people have used this perfect, perfect forward secrecy stuff, uh -huh. you can go back and decrypt all of the stuff they've recorded over the years. Oh, well, isn't that super useful for certain people? Well, if you have the whole private key, then yeah. that's, that's the end of it. And that's why we invented perfect forward secrecy to avoid that thing. Uh, I can think of, course, of a few. You know, I can think of a the few. The NSA, we think it's, uh, uh, we speculate, could have gone to Google and said, "Hey, give us all your private keys," and already done that to most of our traffic. But, yeah, I suppose so. They could, or or yeah. they might not need to, or something like this. Yeah. So uh, a website, for instance, that forbids SSLv2 may be vulnerable if the key is reused on an email server that allows SSLv2. Uh, how many people think to adjust the settings on their email server just to protect their web server? <laughs> Not yeah. usually. Yeah, you're bet. You're really. Hopefully, if you're thinking about it, you're. Yeah, yeah. Because the problem is, right? If they're the same domain, yeah, they're gonna have the. If, 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 if it's, it's all separate, in one box. What if it's separate servers but same domain? Yeah, same so certificate. Then you're. So even yeah. then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like, it's like you think I, on my machines now. It's like the web server has SSL, the email server has SSL. Uh, and I think there's two or three other services I might have configured with SSL. And while I've set the settings in all of them, you know, each one's config file, I had to learn a completely different way to set what the options are. And so, you know, there'd yeah. be a lot of groping uh, through man pages. Gosh, right? now I'm thinking about things like, too, when I set up Mattermost and Rocket Chat, and they, they I don't know if they're using system libraries or if they're using their own. And now, now you combine that and with... Even, no matter what, you're going to have to make sure... In in each application, you have to explicitly disable SSL v2. And, you know, with Let's Encrypt, more and more people are using it in more and more places than ever before. It's not just web servers where the Let's nice Encrypt. The nice thing with Let's Encrypt is you're more likely to have a bunch of separate certificates instead of just one. Good. Yeah, good. True. Good. Yeah, that's, yeah, right. Yeah, each machine. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So that way only the insecure machine gets compromised instead of all the machines. That I makes suppose. me feel better. Uh, so they say uh, TLS security hit an, a, a new low last May with the discovery of Logjam, which we've talked about at length, mm -hmm. uh, a vulnerability caused by deliberately weakened cryptography that allowed eavesdroppers to read and modify data passing through tens of thousands of web servers and email servers. Uh, you know, we know that because Logjam was caused by the old uh, crypto export laws, uh, which required weak cryptography if you were selling outside of the U.S. Uh, and they say right. it's pretty 
practical to perform the drown attack because if you know you want to target certain websites and they're vulnerable, you can pretty much set up shop. The next thing you know, you have all of their secure connections, the passwords, and everything else. Uh, so Matthew Green, who's a cryptography expert at John Hopkins University, <laughs> uh, says, it's amazing to me that we still find one or two of these vulnerabilities per year for protocols that are this old. You know, we stopped, we're supposedly we're going to stop using SSLV2 10 years ago at least. You know, this shouldn't keep happening. I kind of feel that we're not doing our jobs here. Yeah. But, you know, legacy hardware is like people still trying to support IE6 on XP is, is part of the problem. And, you know, older Android phones and stuff. Uh, Tuesday's OpenSSL update makes it uh, impossible for an ordinary end user to enable SSL v2 without uh, declaring explicit intent to do so. The patch also removes support for extremely weak 1990s era uh, ciphers that are key to making the drown attack even faster. Mm -hmm. The weak ciphers uh, were added to all SSL and TLS versions prior to the year 2000 as part of the U.S. government's export regulations. Interestingly... Microsoft IIS version 7 and on and version 3.13 and above of the NSS crypto library from Mozilla mm -hmm. uh, all have SSLv2 disabled by default. And when using older versions of these programs should upgrade right now. Mm. So in this case, Microsoft had better security than OpenSSL. <laughs> Well, again, like going back to what your top point was, not a monoculture, right? So you see yep. variances and differences when somebody else has a different implementation. Yeah. Uh, and so, but, you know, cryptography is hard. So building something brand new to replace OpenSSL or sure. to, to and, and side by side with it would be a lot of work. To be fair, there's likely been flaws in Microsoft's implementation that yes. have not been an issue in OpenSSL. So it's a give yes. and take. It's Obviously, that's uh, NSS. And there's some other commercial or quasi-open source things like Polar SSL and a couple other ones uh, that are maybe can go somewhere. And then there's GNU TLS. Although we don't hear much about it, apparently it's not very good either. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, good for Microsoft. I mean, it's actually kind of a bit of a note here that they uh, that they weren't. Well, they uh, importantly, I don't know what IIS version seven means as far as Windows Server versions. Uh, I believe that would be Windows Server two thousand three and onward, but I might be wrong. So that's that's Windows. That sounds too old. Yeah, maybe. But I think IIS six like in two thousand three. Yeah. We definitely were still using SSLv two for stuff. Yeah, that's true. Maybe chat room could verify. Chat room could chat room could probably let us know as we as we yeah. move on. Ah, I see. the the most general drown attack ex, uh, exploits the nineteen nineties era cryptography that was uh, uses extremely weak forty bit symmetric encryption, mm -hmm. so software could comply with export restrictions. The attacker uh, captures roughly a thousand RSA key exchanges made between an end user and a vulnerable TLS server, and the connection uh, can use any version of uh, SSL or TLS. And to do that, including even the current TLS 1.2, as long as you're using the old export grade crypto. Why export grade crypto is still supported with TLS 1.2, I don't know. We should just, instead of calling it export grade crypto, we should call it intentionally compromised, intentionally weak crypto. Yes. Uh, the attacker then uses the intercepted RSA ciphertext to initiate several thousand SSL v2 connection attempts that include an instruction for the server to use 40-bit ciphers. Hmm. The attacker then compares the ciphertext of up to the 2 to the power of 40 possibilities, and uh, boom, done. 
Uh, decrypting the TLS connection requires about 2 to the power of 50 computations, a task that is worst-case scenario Amazon ETSU service can perform in about 8 hours for $440. Uh, the researchers also devise an alternative decryption method that uses a cluster of video cards and only takes 18 hours. Because, hmm. you know, buying a couple of video cards is a lot cheaper than paying Amazon $440 every time you want to do it. So if you're going to do it in bulk, buy a couple of video cards. Sure, yeah. Uh, the researchers also devised a signi or, yeah, significantly more severe version of Drown that works against servers running versions of OpenSSL that haven't been patched since March 2015 uh, for all the other secret stuff or mm -hmm. uh, previous fixes. Mm -hmm. It allows attackers to decrypt the pre-master secret almost instantly. An attacker can use the technique to perform a man-in-the-middle attack that cryptographically impersonates a vulnerable server. Uh, scans performed by the researchers show that a significant percentage of servers vulnerable to drown are also susceptible to the more severe version of the exploit. Because <laughs> if you're not patched, you're likely not been patched in a while. Right. You probably have bad patch management practice. Yeah. If you haven't disabled V2, then you probably are behind on your patches as well. Uh, the findings suggest that a surprisingly large number of OpenSSL users have yet to install the March 2015 update, which unknowingly fixed the vulnerabilities that make the attack more severe. Uh, so they say Drown is an extension of what cryptographers call the 1998 uh, Bleckenbacher attack, named after Daniel Bleckenbacher, a Swiss cryptographer who discovered the underlying weakness in the PKCS number one V1 encoding function. All right. Uh, while considering... Uh, well, considered a seminal exploit for the mathematical insight it provided into cryptography, it wasn't considered especially practical hmm. in 1998 hmm. because it required attackers to make hundreds of thousands or millions of connections to the victim's server to compromise a single session key. Hmm. Ironically, some of the Bleckenbacher countermeasures built into the SSLv2 protocol provided precisely the type of data required to carry out the so-called padding oracle attack that the Bleckenbacher... Uh, exploit discovered in the first place. Uh. The Blackenbacher defenses, it turned out, provided its own oracle that exposed TLS version 1.0 and later uh, uh, to a plain text recovery attack. Ha. Uh. So the mitigation against this attack in SSLv2 <laughs> actually provided its own new attack. Yeah. Well, because uh, if you remember from the patch notes earlier, I think it ended up, uh, they were zeroing out the wrong bits or something. Mm. And messing it all up. Uh, the drown research is notable not only because it requires many fewer queries to the server, but also because its cross-protocol nature allows attackers to exploit the SSL v2 weakness to defeat the separate SSL or uh, TLS specification. Hmm. The drown findings are also significant because they were the first to identify the ineffectiveness of the Bleckenbacher countermeasures some two decades after they were added. So we added these countermeasures and... Uh, 20 years later, figured out they didn't actually work. Wow. <laughs> uh, Real-time follow-up, Blaster says that uh, IIS 7 may have been Windows 2000 Server 8. Which sounds about right. Yeah. So your, what is your takeaway, Alan? What's your takeaway on this? Well, CSI, uh, CSO Online Magazine has the best one saying, latest attack against TLS shows the pitfalls of intentionally weakening encryption. Yeah, no kidding, like, right? As much as the government wants us to include backdoors and encryption and so on, we just have this giant slew of reasons why last time we tried it, it didn't go so well and Here, screwed us for 20 years. So what we're literally talking about on today's program is a, is a perfect example of what happens when you try to create something like export-grade encryption. Yes. Uh, if they hadn't done this 
uh, and screwed us over 20 years ago, we wouldn't be having these problems right now. Huh. Intentionally compromised encryption. Intentionally weakened encryption. And uh, and and it's and it's it's now today. It's affecting us in ways like we talk about the websites and the email servers, but there's so many more areas and applications and services and things that are impacted by this. You know, TLS is used for almost everything now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of backend communications for everything. Yep. Um, you know. Uh, then now we get to the whole second attack. Okay. So that was just drown in the related the three exploits related to that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so the second major one here is called cache bleed. Cache bleed. Uh, while this one requires local access to the machine, or possibly could work against other virtual machines on the same host machine as you, but that's not been proven yet. Uh, so it's much harder to pull off, but it could be quite disastrous if you do pull it off. Hmm. So this is a timing attack on OpenSSL uh, constant time RSA. So cache bleed is a side channel attack that exploits information leakage through cache bank conflicts in Intel processors. I'll explain what that is okay. later on. Okay. Uh, by detecting cache bank conflicts via minute timing differences, uh, we are able to recover information about victim processes running on the same machine. Our attack is able to recover both 2048 and 4096-bit RSA secret keys from OpenSSL 1.0.2F running on an Intel Sandy Bridge processor huh. after observing only 16,000 secret key operations like decryption and writing a signature. Really? This is despite the fact that OpenSSL's RSA implementation was carefully designed to be constant time in order to protect against cache-based and other side-channel attacks. So, remember we talked about constant time earlier, and so OpenSSL did all this painstaking work to be constant time for this thing, to prevent this kind of attack. But it turns out the Intel processor, mo certain models, actually uh, provide their own timing thing. Uh, while the possibility of a, an attack based on cache bank conflicts has long been speculated, this is the first practical demonstration of such an attack. Uh, Intel's technical documentation described cache bank conflicts as early as 2004. However, they were not widely thought to be exploitable, and as uh, a consequence, common cryptographic software developers have not implemented countermeasures to this attack. They say, we believe that all Sandy Bridge processors are vulnerable. Earlier microarchitectures like Nehalem and Core 2 may be vulnerable as well. So I guess they need to do testing there. Hmm. Their attack code does not work on Intel Haswell processors and later uh, because apparently the cache bank conflicts are no longer an issue uh, because of changes by Intel. They say cache timing attacks exploit timing differences between accessing cache versus non-cache data. Since accessing cache data is faster, a program can check if its data is cached by measuring the amount of time it takes to get it back from the processor. Uh, in one form of a cache timing attack, the attacker fills the cache with their own data. Uh, when a victim has, uh, that uses the same cache accesses their data, the victim's data is brought into the cache. Because the cache size is finite, uh, loading the victim's data into the cache forces some of the attacker's data out of the cache. Hmm. The attacker then checks which sections of its data remained in the cache and which ones didn't. By noticing, hey, this data was in the cache and it's gone now, that means it's been replaced by somebody else's. Uh, to facilitate access to the cache and allow concurrent access to the L1 cache, uh, the Sandy Bird processor cache lines are divided into multiple cache banks. Uh, on the processors that they tested, there are 16 banks, which are each four bytes wide. Uh, 
the cache uh, uses bits two through five of the address to determine the bank uh, that the memory location actually uses. Hmm. In the Sandy Bridge microarchitecture, the cache can handle concurrent accesses to different banks. However, it cannot handle multiple concurrent accesses to the same cache bank. A cache bank conflict occurs when multiple requests to access memory in the same bank are issued at the same time. In the case of a conflict, one of the conflicting requests is served immediately, whereas the others are delayed until the cache bank is available. So by causing them to go into the same bank at the same time, you can figure out uh, whether you're get accessing the same data uh, as the victim. And then by continually doing that and guessing, you can eventually get most of their key back. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Ah, Okay. The main operation OpenSSL performs when decrypting or signing using RSA is modular exponentiation. Uh, so that's you uh, calculate C to the power of D and then modulus N. So let's divide it by N and calculate the remainder, where D is the private key. So uh, modular exponentiation is where you take uh, C exponent to the power of D and then modulus it by N. Uh, to compute a modular exponentiation, OpenSSL repeatedly pre- uh, performs five squaring operations followed by one multiplication. The multiplier in the multiplication is one of 32 possible values. All the numbers involved in these operations are half the size of the key. So if it's a 2048-bit RSA key, the numbers are 1024 bits long. Knowing which multiplier is used in each multiplication reveals the secret exponent, uh, which is, uh, and with it, the private key. Past caching time attacks against OpenSSL and GNUPG or GPG um, recover the multipliers by monitoring the cache lines in which the multipliers are stored. To protect against such an attack, OpenSSL stores the data in multiple of uh, uh, the data of several multipliers in each cache line, ensuring that all the cache lines are used in each multiplication. However, the multipliers are not spread evenly across cache banks. Instead, they're divided into eight bins, each bin spanning two cache banks. More specifically, multipliers 0, 8, 16, and 42 only use bin 0, which spans cache banks 0 and 1. Multipliers 1, 9, 17, and 25 only use bin 1, which spans bank 2 and 3, etc. As a result of this memory layout, each multiplication accesses two cache banks slightly more than it accesses any other cache banks. For example, if in the case of a 4096-bit RSA, the multiplication takes 120 additional accesses of the multiplier's cache bank. And so by hitting all the banks and figuring out which other one is being busy, you can figure out uh, which one it was using. And they say the interesting thing is because RSA keys contain so much redundancy, you can recover a 4096-bit RSA key from as little as 60% of the key material, requiring around two hours of CPU time which on a high-end server with many CPUs can be done in less than three minutes. Hmm. That got my attention. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. All right. So serious. They're saying like on a, so here they did on a Xeon E5-2430 processor. Yes. Which is a weird, that, that's not a very popular, but that was a very early Sandy Bridge mm-hmm. Xeon, I think. Because mm-hmm. almost everything is E26 something something. Hmm. I think those one might be the one no, they're not the one CPU either. I think they were just a very, very early generation, I guess. Huh. You know, Intel changed their model numbers after that. I don't know what it indicates is missing from versus like a 2620 or something like that. Wow. So this is quite the story. Yeah. 
Uh, so, so we have, uh, they have, have like four pages show notes on that. So yeah. So don't worry. It's all in the show notes. Yeah. And we have the Our website linked as well. Has even more. And like you, you're showing a bunch of great diagrams of it, which help you understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're, if you're listening and you want to recover this, the video version might help make a little more sense too. Yeah, uh, yeah, but Ars Technica has lots of good coverage on it, including interviews with cryptographers. They ask questions about it. Uh, but both of these also have FAQs mm. uh, to give you just the information you want, or they both also have full papers if you want to read the whole academic nitty-gritty on it. Yeah. So no matter what level of detail you need about it, uh, all the details are in the show notes. Wow, Alan. Well, thank you very much for summarizing that, because that was more than I was able to wrap my head around, but you've broke it down very straightforward, so I appreciate that. All right, let me tell uh, you about... importantly, update your open SSL. Yeah, go patch your S. Yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, make sure you kill off SSL v3, uh, v2 in everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Our, uh, Arch Uber Valley says that uh, that whole three-hour uh, thing got his attention as well. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, sweet Lou. He says he's a little tired for the math. Alan has it all broken down in the show so, notes. The big one is... is how a high-end server can do it in three minutes. Yeah, three minutes. Woo! Yikes. But that's after, after you've already got 60% of the key, you can brute force the rest in three minutes. Yeah. You know where you get that high-end server? IX Systems. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go grab a rig powered by those incredible Intel processors. Now, that's where you get the new model Intel CPUs that are packed full of goodies. And Intel... My I, Sandy Bridge is awesome. Yeah, I actually got my... I got a, I got a laptop right here that's got Skylake in it. I got a brand new yeah, Skylake. Sorry, that's right. I got a, a Skylake Xeon. Ooh, okay. All right. All right, desktop, fine, though. fine, fine. You win. I'm pretty happy, though. I'm pretty happy. Uh, So check out IX Systems. They build systems from, like, the super, super, super high end uh, down to really something you could use at home for or your small business. Uh, They are the folks behind FreeNAS and projects like that that you might just love. And they have been working with open source technologies on their hardware uh, really since before the dot-com bust. So if you remember the dot-com bust, then you know how old IX is. (laughs) They put it up for a while. Originally, if you go, uh, there's a history thing on their blog. And if you go all the way back... They are spun off from BSDI, the company that hmm. made the first commercial version of BSD. Okay. BSDI. Back, like, and yeah, now. Like all the way back to before it was called open source. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And now, and now they're really building enterprise-grade systems around all the different open source technology stacks. And to really do that right, they have great hardware partnerships, and they bring people in-house at the IX team that are behind some of these really important projects. And they also get involved with the community. In fact, uh, Alan, I know you were there, and uh, I noticed uh, on the 25th they posted their FreeBSD Storage Summit 2016 wrap-up on their blog. I'm sure you must have uh, seen this. Yeah, well, I'm kind of off on the right side. Are you, you on there? I was I'm wondering. not in that picture, but I'm on oh. the other side of the room. Oh, okay, okay. So it uh, sounds like it's a pretty cool summit. If you guys want to read more about it, they have a post up on their blog. Yeah. IX is there. They're going to be at Linux Fest Northwest, too. Of course. Of course. I think they're going to be rocking the FreeBSD booth as well. Yeah. You know what? I'll be honest with you. They're advocates. And whatever your open source workload is, oh, uh, FreeBSD, Linux, uh, ZFS, of course. Oh, yeah. if, if you want to buy one of those video card rigs to break some of this SSL stuff, uh, I know for a fact that they can do that. <laughs> there you go. Go check them out. Just do us a favor by going to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That lets you know you heard about it here, but also if you need to sort of grease the wheel up the chain of command, as it were, they do have uh, a white paper that uh, you might be interested in. It's pretty well put together. Yes. So. But uh, basically, if you can just show someone the price difference between an IX thing and a Dell or an HP yeah, or like and an get- EMC or a NetApp... I'd be like, well, we could have three or we could have 
one. It's like, well, three yeah. better redundancy. Well, no, there's or that speed. too. And also just, you know, you have a conversation with them from an engineering standpoint, and it's obvious too. So Yes. Uh, when you talk to the people there, mm-hmm. it's just, wow, this is so different than I was expecting. By yeah. Calling yeah. It's, it's a huge difference, and uh, it's the peace of mind you need. ixsystems.com slash Tech snap. So, Alan, you dropped the hint bomb earlier, but I believe rumor has it there's a brand new BSD now behind yes. the chalkboard, episode 131. Yes, interviewing um, a sysadmin from a uh, school board in Oregon oh, cool. uh, and how they use uh, FreeNAS for all their storage. Cool. And that's also where there's uh, some updated chatter about uh, GPL violations regarding ZFS and Linux. So... If people are interested in that particular topic, check out that episode of the BSD Now Show. You can find episode 131. It's out right now. You go download it, and by the time this show's done, you can have another high-definition version of Alan Jude for your face. It's perfect, because we're about halfway through the TechSnap show. All right. Well, now with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or maybe starting a thread in our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. Paul writes in with our first email this week. And I want to say thank you to everybody who sent in a whole bunch of emails to cover for our double recording session. You guys are awesome. Best audience ever. So Paul writes in, my TV is on a different router. Dun, dun, dun. Get ready for this one. He says, to take a break from all of the ZFS questions, I'm going to toss in a networking question to stir things up a little bit. I like it. So here's his current setup. Internet comes into his ISP modem uh, slash router, which has a line out to the TV. Uh, then from my, his router goes to his network, uh, which is like a switch or a hub, which goes out to his computer. So he says, I have two TVs, which have, which have to be connected to the ISP's modem or router all in one box so that I can watch their TV, their IPTV service. I cannot mm-hmm. access my network from my TV, so I cannot stream from my devices from my network to my TV. Wow. That's a major bummer, Paul. I was also thinking about using PFSense, but I think this won't solve my problem with PFSense. Is there any solution where I could access my network resources from my TVs? Uh, by the way, he loves to listen to your ZFS elaborations, but this time a network answer would be nice. Thanks for the show. Yes. Uh, so in general, you should be able to make this work. Yes. Um, so I'm assuming that your router has an IP address in the subnet from the ISP's modem router and uh, so on. So on both your router and the ISP's modem router, you need to configure static routes, although almost all of the routers will let you do this. So on the ISP's router, you say, in order to get to... Your, like, let's just say the modem uses 192.168 and the my router uses uh, 10.0.0.1 or whatever, right? So on the ISP's modem, you say, in order to get to the 10.0.0.1 or 10.0.0.0 subnet with a subnet mask of 255.255.250, whatever, you need to forward the packet to the 192.168, the outside IP address of my router. So that way, when the uh, TV is trying to access, some, access something on the ISP's network, it routes right. one way. Going anywhere else, it routes another way. Yeah, because by default, all every attempt your TV has to connect to your internal network is going to be routed out to the internet, where it's going to get dropped. Uh, whereas once you add the static route to your ISP's modem router, um, it will say, oh, you're actually looking for the computers behind this other router. Let me, tell, let me send the packet off to that router that actually knows how to get there then your router may or may not need a static route saying, hey, to get to the subnet of mm. 
the uh, ISP's motor router, you right. need to go back. But yeah. probably actually won't because your router's Shouldn't default gateway is back to the ISP's motor router. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, um, okay, wow. So that actually would work as long, assuming he can get access to the routing table on his ISP's yes. router. Which almost all of them in the little web interface will let you add up to like 10 static routes or something. So I, I think, I, I feel like I should voice what I think everybody watching is probably thinking is get a Chromecast or a, or an Apple TV or an XBMC or a Kodi uh, Raspberry Pi. Hang that off your HDMI port and put that on your main network. Don't use the built-in smart TV functions anyways because they're not going to be supported in a year. Oh, uh, well, most of them are use, just using DLNA and they can access the Samba share. That is true. That is true. Or, yeah, you know, if you yeah. have a Plex... But do you follow what I'm saying? Like the solution might be just to hang a very cheap, simple device off an HDMI port well, and put that you, on your LAN. Eh. I like, like your solution, I, though. I mean, you actually did solve the problem. If he has access yeah, to the routing like, table, he could do I, that. I can go in there and add a line and or, you know, click around in the web interface for a second, and all of a sudden the two networks can see each all other. Right, but follow me. Follow yeah. me. So if, okay, now just follow me. If mm -hmm. he has a Chromecast, say 35 bucks, puts a Chromecast on there, puts Plex on there, he could connect that to a Plex media server sitting on top of a massive ZFS pool, right? So we could still work ZFS into the answer of this question. To solve his problem, he needs to get a Chromecast and then go get a free NAS server, set up a ZFS pool, and just stream on his local LAN that way. Boom, ZFS solves the networking problem. You're welcome. Yeah, but he can use the ZFS he already has if he just adds the static routing thing. And he doesn't right, have fine. to buy a Chromecast. And, you know, a Chromecast is just as likely to break as the built-in yeah, yeah. TV. Yeah, I'm just saying, like... The, and yes, Wi-Fi sucks. So yeah, going over the existing yeah. Ethernet connection will probably be better. I'm not a huge Chromecast fan anyways. I was just... That might be an other... Could be a way if you just change your perspective to fix this problem. I was trying to answer it with CFS, to be honest with you. Okay, but that's a good answer, really, is adjust the routing table, and that should work. So Stuart writes in uh, with a question about, speaking of ZFS, migrating from ext4, uh, and he wants to talk about fast read, too. Uh, so he writes in, hello, thanks for the awesome show. Uh, you've got me interested in ZFS enough to consider how I would build my own home file server. I have two questions, and I would like your help with. Firstly, I currently have a fair amount of data on a bunch of extended four formatted drives. The important data is backed up. But there's no redundancy. I was considering building a new server and buying drives to match the ones I already have, so I would buy a new 4TB drive to match the current one. Initially set up ZFS mirror one deep using the new drive, then copy the data on the old drive to the new ZFS pool, and then add the old drive to the mirror, making it too deep. Mm -hmm. Firstly, That's a very reasonable way to do it. Is this the best approach? Okay. And secondly, if FreeNAS and FreeBSD don't, as it appeared when I was researching this, support reading from my old extended 4 drive. What's the best way to do this copy? Well, uh, FreeBSD has support for reading from ext2, which is read-only compatible with ext4, right? I have that impression. Yeah, oh, yeah, read-only, right yes. Yeah. Yes. So you can mount uh, ext4 by ignoring all the journals and stuff I guess I've and never, just pretending it's ext2. I've never personally... I've never personally gone beyond extended three. I've done a three as a two in, yes, in college. Yeah. We, we were taught to do that if, yeah. it didn't, if three uh, didn't And work. that was a big deal when three came out. Yeah. I think it worked uh, with four, too. But it worked with four. Yeah. Uh, separately, just recently on BSD Now, we covered in the uh, quarterly status report that there's support for doing ext4 by using the Linux kernel as a module uh, to, do, <laughs> to use the native ext4 driver compiled for FreeBSD. Okay. Um, but in general, you could be able to do it that way. All right. Um, so the other thing is, now that you can get OpenZFS on Linux, you could make the pool on Linux yeah. 
import the data from ext4, uh-huh. export the pool, and yeah. then import the pool on yeah. a FreeBSD machine. Yeah. But in general, ext2 driver in FreeBSD, and I don't know if FreeNAS exposes that, though, um, would allow you to do that. So second list right, is... Obviously, that would be a lot faster than trying to copy over the network or something. I, I'm likely taking on a new project soon, which would involve me writing software, which has to process images that are very large, like 50 gigabyte arrays, uh, mm-hmm. on a disk, probably in a non-contiguous manner. If I was to use sh- my shiny new ZFS server to hold these arrays, would the best thing for me to do would be to look to make non-contiguous read speeds as fast as possible? And how would I think he's asking, how would I do that? Thanks for the great show. Right. So it really depends. Now, there's non-contiguous and there's non-contiguous. Uh, so is, is it non-contiguous or is it random? The big important thing is how much are you reading? If you're reading you know, a one megabyte at a time uh, in different places, your performance is going to be fine. If you're reading four kilobytes at a time in random places, uh, then it will be maybe less good. Okay. Uh, ZFS has a prefetch algorithm that will, you know, notice what you're doing and try to keep up, although obviously it can't predict random. Um, and then obviously the more RAM you have, the more of the file you can keep in RAM and so on. Uh, but if you're only ever reading, then something like an L2 arc where you can cache uh, the bits of those large files uh, might help or it might not. It really depends on the, the size of your working set, how much of these files you're doing at the same time. Um, in general, ZFS should be okay for it. So uh, wait, wait, wait. What's the difference? What do you mean? All these files at the same time? If if it's one machine accessing one well, file? If, if, if you're trying to access only 50 gigabytes of data total, then easily that caches on an SSD to be really fast. Sure. If you have 150 gigabyte files, all of a sudden that's five terabytes and you don't have that much SSD. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, the big if SSD. You need, so yeah. if you're doing a lot of really small reads and need better performance for that, you want more spindles and uh, to do them as mirrors, and you will get more performance that way. All right. Are you ready to jump back to networking? See what we're doing? Networking to file system? Sure. All right. Timothy writes in, PFSense and a network-wide VPN client. All right, here he goes. Here we go. This is a this is a question I think that probably a lot of people have. Firstly, thanks for all your helpful discussions, particularly around ZFS and FreeNAS. <laughs> it's helped me greatly, but I have a little more, uh, something a little different for you today. I'm planning on setting up a PFSense router in my house as an open VPN client such that... Um, Every device on the network runs through a VPN. I'm hosting a VPS mainly for privacy for my ISP. Mm-hmm. Additionally, I've always run some kind of VPN server out of my house that I can get to my systems on my local network remotely, which I know PFSense can do. The main problem is uh, that uh, with Australian upload speeds being what they are, it is useful for connecting to my computer over SSH and similar, but, it is, uh, but even using it for basic web browsing on the remote device... Is painful, <clears throat> like if he's from a. So you're at a shop. coffee shop and you want to VPN to your house and use your home internet connection. Yes. But when you're at home, you want to VPN to your VPS and use its internet connection. <laughs> I think so. He says, I know OpenVPN clients can be configured to be able to communicate with each other. If my PFSense mm-hmm. router is one of those clients, can I talk from my laptop to at a coffee shop through the OpenVPN VPN, uh, VPN server on my VPS through my PFSense box and communicate with devices on my home local network, if possible, theoretically? This gives me the internet speed of connecting to the VPN in the data center. Center, while still allowing access to my network, much more convenient and constantly switching between two separate VPNs. So, ah, yes, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so ideally, you will dial all your clients into the VPN on the VPS, which has the fast connection. Right. Uh, and so, you will have to uh, configure the VPN connection from your house to the VPS, 
as a site-to-site VPN, which is basically one that's meant to bridge two offices. Right? If your company has two offices, you can do a site-to-site VPN where they're bridged so that all the machines appear as if they're on one really big LAN and they don't actually realize that they're in two separate places. Uh, and then you basically make your laptop the third site. Easy peasy. And, uh, yeah, okay. it should be fairly straightforward. Um, so yeah, you want your own VPN client set up to see each other and you basically use the one the VPN server on the VPS as everything and you always connect to that and in the kind of roundabout way we'll be able to get to your house uh, because if you let all the clients see each other you'll have one big happy virtual LAN. Okay, Alan, to round out the feedback for this week, we have one more email from Australia. Two emails from Australia back-to-back. That's pretty cool. Uh, Jacob writes in. He says, Hi, Chris and Alan. Thanks for the show. It's awesome. I've got a question about where I should put my home server. This is a great question. He says, mm-hmm. I live in Melbourne, Australia, and I'm building a house, which finally allows me to put a rack server cabinet in. My plan is to order a few servers from IX Systems. Uh, he says, even though it's kind of expensive to ship to Australia, it's still che- cheaper than buying locally here. Mm-hmm. And you know what? The staff are amazing. Exactly. Uh, he says, uh, I'm going to get a rack cabinet locally here, though. My question is, where should I put it? I know if I put it in the indoor garage, I may get a little dust and perhaps even moisture in there. And if I put it in the house, it's going to be way too loud. I saw people put it in the basement, but unfortunately here in Australia, not many houses have basements. Should I get the local contractor to build a small, isolated section in the garage with sound isolation and a raised floor, or should I think about something else? Thanks. Obviously, building a special thing for the servers is great. <laughs> uh, for me, I use the spare bedroom, uh, although it happens to be in the basement. Um, and I found that most of the fan noise, because of the high frequency, doesn't go through walls and doors. Uh, so it's fairly good for that. Uh, the disadvantage of building a very small, like a, just enclosing the cabinet, is making sure you have enough ventilation. You have to cool there. it. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, you know, so for me, uh, in the room in the basement, uh, there is a, a my, the old air conditioner I had when I had an apartment. So it's a, ah. a, a floor unit that has hoses that go out the window. You mm-hmm. remember people would ask, what are those hoses going out your window? <laughs> uh, so that runs in the room in the basement and cools that whole room. Uh, and, and that's where the rack is. And, of course, the attic's no good. It gets too hot up there, like Colonel Panic yep. in the chat room's talking about right now. That's what yeah. he did. Um, uh, yeah. And remember, also, so, power is a consideration. Yes. Uh, yeah, you definitely want to consider that, you know, if you're going to build an enclosure or something, make sure you get enough power. Uh, you know, like I had a separate 15 amp circuit put in for the computer room I'm sitting in yeah. when I moved in. Yeah. I didn't know that I was going to build a data center in my basement or I would have had a couple of circuits put into the room down there while the electricians <laughs> were here. You know, and well, you know, it was before I moved in, so all my stuff wasn't in the way. It made when, it much easier to get work done. When Angela and I were building our house, and I told them I wanted uh, two 30 amp connectors out there, they're like, "What? What do you put in an extra washer and dryer and then just put it out there?" Uh, you know, it, it really. So if you can have a contractor get power out there, and you can build a room and you can cool it, that's definitely the way to go. Skip the raised floor. I mean, ideally, I mean, if you can afford it, do it. But, but it only really makes sense when you have like the whole room with the raised floor, so you can run cabling under it and yeah, so on. Yeah. You, know? uh, you could save a lot of money there. And what I would do instead is focus on, if you can, super tall ceilings. That might help some of the, with some of the yeah. heat. And then have, some, have a way to exhaust that heat and a way to bring in a fresh air exchange. Well, uh, that was the interesting thing. The very first data center we were in uh, for Scale Engine, they did what's called hot aisle containment, right? So they had yes, two, rows, uh, two rows of, yeah. of rack mm-hmm. back to back. And they actually had a roof over it and a door on the end. And the other one was flush against the wall. And there was actually just a big passive vent and the hot air would just kind of go out by itself. 
because you know, all the computers are pushing their hot air into this little contained area and there's a vent. And so the air just kind of goes out by itself. Uh, now, with our application, it was fine. You know, part of it was the outside, the outside of the hot containment, the air temperature was like 17 degrees Celsius, which is pretty chilly. Um, although with the higher density servers at the second uh, pod that they had, uh, they had to uh, add some extra stuff to, uh, to push the air out because there were so many servers. Yeah. A lot of one-use servers pumping out a lot of heat. So I guess I would say just consider that. And and remember, you can also talk to IX about some of the specifics here, and they can work mm-hmm. with you on that too. So Yeah, like uh, when I first got my server from IX, uh, it by default comes with the fan set to like full chat, and that's, that's loud. Uh, but if you go into IPMI, you can be like, hey, mm-hmm. fans to optimal, and mm-hmm. they will adjust based on temperature. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, they were much less ridiculous. Uh, Last but not least, the other nice thing about building your own space is you have a little more control over the networking situation over there. You even have the opportunity potentially to mount a patch panel if you want. And I don't know how much work you have. I don't know how much of this work you can do yourself to save money. But that, you know, for servers, I guess here's what I want to say is if you're going to host your own servers in your house, build it the best you can so that way you don't get caught when you're busy. When life gets busy and something's going on and you don't have time for a server outage, you don't have time for this particular problem, you just need this damn thing to work, build it so that doesn't happen to you because these kinds of things will just sit there for a while until you can get around to fixing them. In the meantime, maybe you can't watch television or XYZ doesn't work or nothing in your house gets an IP address. You know, these kinds of problems are DNS is broken. And of course, it's on you to fix it. And of course, you're busy or you just got home fixing stuff all day long. And the last thing you want to do is figure out why your DNS server isn't working. Uh, So build in a way that prevents any of that kind of stuff you can control from happening. Overheating, networking issues. So having its own space is nice. That is a really yeah. great way to go if uh, you can afford it. Yeah, so for me, when, I, when, we, the, when the electricians were here, I had them basically put a 10-gig Ethernet jack into every room. Yeah. Uh, which included the room in the basement, uh, which is fine. And then when I put a rack in there, it's like, well, I don't actually have 10-gig equipment yet, so all the 10-gig ports are just 1-gig. Mm-hmm. And so 1-gig into the server room is probably not enough when I have a 1-gig internet connection. Right. And so I end up uh, myself pulling like six or eight more strands from the switch in the laundry room into that back bedroom. Yeah. Uh, and I created a giant lag between the switches. and uh, The internet comes in in the laundry room, and one of those six cables goes directly. So it provides just a, a clean whole gigabit dedicated um, to the internet. goes into the router. Did you know? Stuff goes back and forth. Did you know that uh, the last email next week is about your internet setup? People want to oh. know. So you could go into detail if you want next week. Okay. A little tease there. Sure. Uh, and then, Jacob, one last bit of advice. Just I know we've just said all this stuff. Don't overbuild it at the same time. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say that. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, before you go crazy and spend a bunch of money, realize how many servers are you going to have in here? Yeah. If it's like three, you might just build a couple of shelves or something yeah. instead of buying a rack. Yeah, you might just you be know. fine. You might not need to go too crazy. The moisture might not be a big deal. I live in the freaking Pacific Northwest. It is basically a rainforest here, and we have a couple of servers out in our garage all the time. You know what? The moisture cuts down on the static electricity. So there you go. Don't you worry know, about it too if much. You, if you read the, the details on, on the server motherboards or whatever, it says what level of humidity it can deal with. Yeah. And it's usually, you know, as long as you're not actually spraying water on it, it'll probably be fine. 
Yeah. So just and you know what too, Jacob. Also, I'll just mention this: if if you need, if you're on a budget, start with the essentials: good power, good networking, uh, and a shelf, right? And then you can build from there later on. You could build the walls. You could build the cooling system down the road too. Uh, because I've been in this position where I'm building my house, and I, you know, I'm arguing with the con, the con- literally with my contractor. We had to have the conversation: Do you really need 17 Ethernet jacks in this house? And I'm like, Yeah, absolutely. I need four in the living room. Of course, I need four jacks. And you know what? You know what? Turns out, I ended up putting a switch in the living room because I needed more than four ports. So there you go. <laughs> you know, it, it, I so I remember having these conversations. I remember how everything adds to the cost. So you could, if you yep. just walk that line, you'll, you'll nail it. All right, so uh, if you want to get your question answered, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and send it in to the TechSnap program. Just make sure you choose us in the dropdown. If you've asked us a, que- a question recently, we are doing a double right now, so you may see your question. question next week, and we've yep. answered a bunch more questions. Yep, there you and go. And if you haven't asked your question yet, send it in already. Yeah, come on, what the heck? All right, with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup of stories that just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still want to talk about them and give you some links to read even more on your own after the show is all over. And some of these the stories that we've slipped in here, just like, you know, sneaky-like here and there, they came from our subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. Like the first one that I submitted to the subreddit this week. <laughs> <laughs> Former Google CEO Schmidt, Eric Schmidt, to head a new Pentagon Innovation Board. Eric Schmidt, the former chief executive officer of Google, will head a new Pentagon advisory board aimed at bringing Silicon Valley's innovation and best practices to the U.S. military, according to <laughs> Defense Secretary Ash Carter on Wednesday. What? You're laughing, Helen. You're laughing. Because um, <clears throat> this is how it works. It, when you say Silicon Valley now, you're mostly talking about ridiculous startups and just Hype. silly things. Yeah, VC funding. Yeah, garage. You know, starting your garage. Yeah, yep. Uh, Schmidt, now the executive chairman of Alphabet, the parent company of Google, said the board would help bridge what he called the clear gap between how the U.S. military and technology industry operate. Schmidt told me, but see, in Silicon Valley, it's all about iterate, iterate, iterate. Throw out the old technology. Yeah, which really doesn't work for the military, where it's like, well, you know, we can't replace stuff every. 19 months or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Schmidt told reporters that he has a list of possible members. He's got a list, Alan, but he hasn't contacted them yet. The Pentagon said their first meeting could take place as early as April. So, um, you know how people say Google is sometimes creepy? You know what really creeps me out about Google? Mm -hmm. Eric Schmidt. That's what creeps me out about Google is Eric Schmidt. Why is that? Uh, Eric Schmidt, uh, you know, uh, when uh, he stepped down as the head guy, he was the federal he was the federal government liaison, which uh, a lot of things changed since then. And now this is weird. Uh, he's written books about this uh, about the future of corporations and how they should adopt the Google model. He's just kind of a weird guy. And in some of the interviews he's done, he's had really weird, um, uncomfortable answers he's given that. Uh, I don't know. I, I think if people actually looked into him, they'd, they'd find him to be a pretty surprising character. So it's kind of odd that he's going to be consulting for the Pentagon. Uh, yeah. All right, Alan, so tell me about this one, CV 2016-0051. Uh, so this is a link to a GitHub repo where uh, this guy has a proof of concept to exploit this Microsoft vulnerability that's been patched, but if it hasn't been patched yet, you can watch how we can just sit here and crash these various versions of Windows. 
Yeah, so he causes this thing to do a little blue screen of death, doesn't he? Yep. Nice. So it's up on GitHub, so go check that out. Yeah. But the one, actually, it looks like the one exploit there, he managed to actually give himself... Yeah, uh, yeah, he can get system. Program. Yeah, he can get system level privileges. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's even including on Windows 10 64 uh, bit. So there you go. There you or go. It was, uh, on Windows 10, it BSODs instead of starting calculator. Yeah, but either yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, on the early. Which versions, is actually the intended behavior, right? I mean, that's better. <laughs> You'd rather than, crash than run the exploit. It's better than nothing. Uh, I watched it, so you didn't have to, and I'm I'm happy to see Computer World has an article about it. I watched hours of testimony between Apple, the FBI. And, of course, the House Judiciary Committee panel about uh, encryption on the iPhone. And they actually had some tough questions for Director Comey. And in there, uh, Comey admitted that the FBI was responsible for getting the iCloud account reset, which prevented future backups. He says, and I quote, As I understand from the experts, there was a mistake made in that 24 hours after the attack where the county, at the FBI's request, took steps that made it impossible later to cause the phone to back up again to the iCloud. That's what, according to his testimony. He admits that there was their mistake that prevented the phone from backing up properly. Yeah, so asking Apple to fix it for them is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, there's that. You know, uh, I've, I, read a, I read a piece uh, online that really made me think about this, and then there was somebody who testified on this committee. I'm surprised we haven't seen... Oh, actually, no. I'm sorry. It was it was one of the panel members. I should probably get his name. I should get. A, I'll try to find a clip of it. He asked the question: Why can't you just take the non-volatile storage out of the iPhone 5C, and on there is the HFS Plus file system, which has the encryption key and the encrypted file system on this chip. Put it in a reader and access it like any other hard drive. And uh, the reason why the uh, panel member was asking the question is because. There was a post online where somebody did just that to see if it was possible. Is they broke open an iPhone 5C, removed the non-volatile uh, storage, and put it on a reader board, and was able to access it. So, and with the FBI, so the so the guy asked, well, you know, with your two billion dollar budget here, you're telling me you couldn't do that. And he says, and by the way, if you could do this, you could make infinite copies of the file system, and you could run cracks against it at infinitum. And there's no passcode prevention at that point anymore. Yeah, uh, and Comey you're accessing had, it directly. Yeah. And Comey basically said, well, I don't know if we've if we've well, I don't know anything about computers, so yeah. you're just speaking gibberish. Well, actually, and, and and actually, at one point when he continued to press him on the point, Comey said, uh, uh, "Sir, if I knew the answer to that, it'd be malpractice. I'm not supposed to be in the IT things uh, field of things." So that was his answer. Yeah, it was an interesting panel, and the debate goes on. So our first mm-hmm. Krebs article from the roundup, and maybe yes. our only Krebs one this week. I think maybe mm-hmm. there's no. Maybe I have one. I more. I. I, I I think we've rushed with the show notes. No, no, no. Krebs <laughs> gets good representation. In fact, let oh, me yes. check. Hold on. Survey says, yeah, it is our only Krebs one this week, but don't worry. Yep. Uh, Breach Credit Union comes out of its shell. Yes. That's good. So uh, via um, hold, uh, hold Security, uh, Krebs found out about this credit union who had their website was compromised. So he calls them up and tries to tell them that I don't really believe him. So after a couple of days and they haven't fixed it, he calls them up again, gets a different person. He's like, yeah, and they're like super skeptical and they're like, they don't believe that he's Krebs or that, you know, it's not some kind of scam. And eventually he gets a call back from like the senior IT director guy and he's like, oh yes, we all, everybody here knows who Krebs is. <laughs> I think part of the problem is that Krebs' only outlet was to call like the regular support number for the bank, this small credit union, and get, you know, your regular, yeah. high, like, uh, 
support person, not actually some way to reach directly to the IT security team. So, you know, all the IT guys, sure, they know they've read, read Krebs's blog, but the people that answer the phone so that to tell grandma how to, to, you know, enter her debit card number or whatever, uh, <laughs> they don't know who Krebs is. No, and you wouldn't expect them to. It's not like they're yeah. all, not everybody that works at the bank is, is reading the latest cybersecurity news. In this news. particular case, uh, it wasn't a very sophisticated attack. It seems uh, the credit union had Joomla with some third-party oh, standard uh, backup module. Uh, and it turns out that this backup module available for both Joomla and WordPress has a flaw, and you can get a web shell. You know what would be and a great gift? with that web shell, you can do whatever you want. You know what somebody should do for the TechSnap program for episode 300? This would be a lot What's of up? work, so you don't have to do it. But, man, this would be a great gift for Alan and I. If you could go through TechSnap history and just count every time a compromise to a company happened because of a CMS vulnerability, if we could just get the name of the CMS and, and the company that was compromised and then get a total, that would be an incredible number to talk about for episode 300, because yeah. how many times is it the CMS low-hanging fruit? For little people's weblogs or whatever, okay. If you're a bank, how do you not have the web app run on like a read-only file system so yes. that you can't write anything? Thank you. Like the bank, what are they uploading? You know, or maybe, you know, and, it and, runs, when, and, when users access it, it runs as uh, with, from this web server with this username, and it always has no right access to anything. Oh, sure. And, and, and then if you access it with this other URL that can only be accessed via the VPN or whatever, that's where you can post, uh, make new posts and upload stuff. Realistically, though, any changes to a bank website are likely going through a change control committee. They're being approved by several people. They're being uploaded to a development server first, and then they're being pushed well, to a production sure. server. But the bad guys went and changed the website with no approval from anybody. I so know, great but system you this got. is my point: is there's no reason why that why the production system should be anything but a read-only image, mm -hmm. and maybe it's a maybe it's a statically built uh, a version. Yeah, like it should be statically built yeah, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I just don't understand, Alan. Joomla. <laughs> I mean, not to sure, pick on Joomla, but that, sure. It's just you know, I just think in my head, it's like nginx config. Two PHP FPM backends. One runs as the user triple W and can't read, modify, or can't write or modify or create new files at all. Has no access except for to read. Mm -hmm. uh, and then over here, you have a second PHP pool or whatever running as the user, you know, website mm -hmm. that can write files, can upload images, and only you only allow access to the one that can post via the VPN from inside the bank or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, protect it with HTTPS, like basic authentication or something, mm -hmm. so that the bots can't get it. But basically, in this case, the bank's website was compromised by a regular website botnet thing that just goes out picking on Joomla's. It, they, the attackers probably didn't even know that they compromised a bank and could have injected some code to steal the login and password of everybody at the bank that <laughs> logged into the website. Right. <sighs> But Krebs uh, goes on noting that, you know, what would be really great is that we had a standard way to get a hold of people about this stuff so that the, it gets escalated to the right people. Mm. You know, and so there's CERT, the Computer Emergency Response Team, mm -hmm. and they can deal with certain things like vulnerabilities uh, and making sure that vendors get notified and so on. But they don't really, they don't have the capacity or the manpower to be able to manage, you know, I need to report that, you know, this bank's website is compromised and I need to do it by not calling the 
customer support number or XYZ Talk private to, company. Well, it could be anything. It could be anything that. Well, if you remember all the Tech Snap episode one, uh, you know, oh, we scanned Sony's thing and found they're like they're using five year out of date Apache, but yep, yeah. there's no. How do we get a hold of the Sony security team? You know, and I can understand that the companies can't don't want to just give this the uh, out an email address or something for that, and so it makes sense to do something like cert. Uh, but maybe we just need to give cert more money and manpower, and have every company has to have, you know, a contact with cert that's responsible for accepting vulnerability notifications. Or maybe some sort of like public wiki. When people find it, they make a public wiki, but then that could be yeah. abused, right? Exactly. So, in the marketing or all kinds of silly mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's why something like CERT, where it's like this trusted third party that, you know, is established you the thing. And then we will make sure it gets only the right information gets, you know, that so that if you're Sony, you're only getting notifications about things you actually care about. Right. Good point. All right, Alan. But you know, building that, you know, that takes a lot of people. You need relatively skilled people. And it wouldn't be a fun job to sit there and like, get vulnerability disclosures and coordinate with vendors to get them fixed. But yeah, that's a good point. So uh, when you're over there at Asia BSD con, uh, better tell all those MacBook running uh, BSD guys to update their one password because I bet there's going to be an update. Uh, Post over on medium by Ross Hossman points out that one password sends your passwords in clear text across the loopback interface on the Mac. If you use the browser extension. So he tested this on Mac OS 10, 10.11.3 using one password from the Apple Mac uh, App Store. And it's using Chrome with the one password extension version 4.5.3.90. And he has, uh, he basically, you know, he figured it out by doing a TCP dump, Alan, uh, and, uh, and then later a Wireshark. And uh, there's the password right there in clear text. And it's, yeah, that's, and it's uh, pretty easy for anybody with the min privileges to listen on loopback. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not necessarily a very remotely ex- uh, exploitable kind of vulnerability, but it's one for your passwords that's pretty significant. Yeah. It seems like it wouldn't be... If, if you're going to be connecting to localhost, it couldn't be that hard to do it over SSL. Yeah. yeah. Although, in that case, a, a local attacker could probably get access to the certificate because it would be on the same machine as well, but yeah. you know, it'd be better than what they're doing now. Uh, oh, we have a video for our next story in the roundup. What's this? So I invited a few of the world's best hackers to try to hack me and show me where my vulnerabilities are. And now I'm going to meet them in Las Vegas for DEF CON. So this was posted up on Facebook, it looks like. You want me to yeah. play a little more of this? Uh, yeah, I think the first one really gets the point home. Biggest in, like, hacker convention of the year. Okay. They're going to hack me using social engineering, which is essentially hacking without any code. They just use a phone and an internet connection. Do you want to do a sample vishing call? What's vishing? Vishing is voice solicitation, and basically um, what you do is you use the phone to extract information or data points that can be used in a later attack. Let's do it. Will okay. you, who are you going to call? Maybe I'll call your cell phone provider and okay. see if I can get them to give me ah, your cool. email address. I, I bet they're good. I bet they have my back. But yeah, go, go for it. This is a great I'm experiment. I'm going to spoof from your number, so it's going to look like it's calling from you. Okay. All right, so this can, you kind of get the idea, but this is yes. so, this is really So neat. she goes to YouTube and gets a loop of a baby crying sound effect. Yeah. And puts that on out of her speakers while she calls and uses a... Hi, I'm actually, I'm spoofing. so sorry. Can you hear me okay? I, my baby, I'm sorry. <laughs> my, my husband's like, we're about to apply for a loan and we just had a baby and he's like, get this done by today. So I'm so sorry. I can't I, um, call you back. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
uh, and basically social engineers, the phone company into, uh, resetting his password, adding her to his account, um, and finding out what email address is associated with his account. Look at his face. He's like, oh crap, she's got me. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this is later on and there's more in the video. So if you're interested, go yeah, check it out. That's a great video. Uh, Thanks, Alan. Very cool. But yeah, it just shows how you can do, you know, the adding the crying baby loop off. And, and her anxiousness, you is, know, which yeah, she did very good acting. Yeah. Was, if you're motivated, that's what it takes. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we've seen th- th- basically this is how they did the, what was it, Matt, somebody from uh, Gawker or whatever. Not Matt Heyman. No. Nope. Uh, yeah, but I know yeah. what you mean. The guy that got his but, yeah. iCloud compromised by by yeah. by compromising so his Amazon basically account. By, and... by like yeah, getting his Amazon account or calling yeah. Amazon and getting them to give part of his credit card number. Right. Uh, and the, then the, the using that, needed to yeah. yeah, and then using that to call Apple and yeah. and pulling all the same kind of crap, very easily managed to take over everything. Yeah, uh, and that's always going to be the weakest link is the humans yep. and of course we don't want to talk to robots that are probably less easy right. and it's, yeah it's like you know no, nobody wants to not help the lady on the other end of the phone with the crying baby in the background right i wonder if there's going to be an overreaction by law enforcement at some point to really crack down on this kind of stuff and then make examples out of people you could see that uh sure but the big one is you know you, you need to support companies and you know mm-hmm. if you call up scale engine we don't reset your password yeah, no it, it really a it's matter like, of policy and, and, and practice would really yeah. fix a lot of this stuff. That's true. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, when you call Apple support, Apple's whole marketing thing is that they're there to help you. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, if, if, I, if you can't definitively prove that I'm me, you probably shouldn't help that person. No. But, it, you know, you can see how it is possible to, you know, not have that email address anymore or whatever and end up locked out of an iTunes account and have no way to get it back. And, you know, all your music is there, and that's a big deal. But, yeah. it, you know, that's like most of the uh, recovery stuff is pretty, you know. It's like having all this two-factor auth stuff is great until somebody can call up and go around all of it by running a crying baby loop off <laughs> YouTube. <laughs> silly humans. Speaking of silly humans, the independent.co.uk is fired up. Only China and Russia violate their citizens' privacy as much as the snoopers' charter. Allows. I've been reading more and more about this, so I thought we'd cover a little bit here. Uh, Theresa May, Theresa May, the Home Security Secretary or Home Secretary, wants to give police powers that even the most and uh, they, as they say, unfree countries do not have. Uh, the investigatory investigatory powers bill unveiled yesterday is an affront to Parliament after three inquiries in which MPs said the measures went too far and the powers it contained were sprawling. May told her officials to go even further. It will give the police the power to read your web histories, even if you're entirely innocent of any crime. It will let the police hack your phone. In fact, the hacking provisions are so broad that it will give it the intelligence agencies and the police the power to force your ISP to hack your personal devices from the camera and microphone on your smartphone or TV to your laptop or desktop. It isn't even clear whether the judicial warrants allowing such hacking will be signed off for individuals or whether judges will be asked to sign off on broader warrants enabling the hacking of, say, a group of people the state doesn't like. Parliament has said well, the lack of detail. Too, they're, they're like, uh, we'll just make your ISP do the hacking because we're not going to pay for the hacking. 
Yeah, so this has been tr- this has been going around for a while though. Like it was, they said it was too yep. much it's before, crazy. and it didn't. <laughs> They're like, make it worse. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't follow, but it's it's really quite awful. Yep, it seems reactionary too. All right, tell me about those cryptos team, uh, Diffie and Hellman, that wins one million. What? 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 The Diffie and Hellman team? What? Wins a million? Yes. So, <laughs> uh, Rafael Diffie and what's Hellman? Uh, Martin Hellman yeah. were the guys who invented the Diffie Hellman yeah. key exchange. Yes. You know, part that makes SSH work and SSL work, and you know, almost all the crypto that we depend on today is based right. on work by these two, and that they've been uh, awarded the uh, Nobel Prize of uh, Computing. Yeah, the Alan Turing Computing Award, which is unofficially known as the yeah. Nobel Prize of Computing. Which gives you a million bucks, apparently. Yep. Well, there you go. Well, they kind of deserve it. Yeah, well, they deserved it a long time ago when a million dollars worked more, actually. But, <laughs> uh, you know, their work has become more important recently. Hmm. As we, you know, we want less people to read our stuff. All right. So I believe the head of uh, Brazil's Facebook division... Has mm-hmm. been arrested for refusing to share WhatsApp data with the government in yeah. Brazil. Yeah. yeah, I would take that to be that. Uh, interesting. I kind of assumed WhatsApp was already uh, kumbaya with local governments. Apparently not. Yeah, in a state book, uh, Facebook called uh, the arrest an extreme and disappropriate measure. Disproportionate. Sorry, the arrest was ordered by the judge in the northeastern state of. Oh, geez, this this the problem here, Alan, is the font is super tiny for me. Hello, hi there. Uh, so there, now I can read it. Facebook has always been and will be available to address any questions Brazilian authorities may have, the company said, but this was too far. Uh, the judge ordered that the guy goes in there for 48 hours. Yeah, well, so uh, they were like, you have to give us the stuff. And they're like, no. And they're like, okay, here's a fine. Give us the stuff. No, here's another fine. Give us the stuff. No, go to jail for two days. And I guess is he not? Is he paying the fines? Was that? Do they say in here? I think Facebook did pay the fines because hmm. I, I don't know that they really have a choice technically. But oh, good guy, Facebook. I guess interesting. Interesting to boy. That is a complicated situation, isn't it? Yeah, because uh, you have to imagine this is a common problem for WhatsApp. That's got to be WhatsApp is super popular, so that's got to happen all the time. All right, Alan. Well, guess what? That brings us to the end of this week's episode of TechSnap. Mm-hmm. 256 is in the can. I've been waiting for this episode for a long time. It feels good to be at the end of 256. If you'd like to join us, we won't be live next week because Alan is traveling to Asia, but we will be live the week after that. Go to jblive.tv for that. Uh, and you can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted in your local time zone. Don't forget, though, if you just subscribe to our RSS feeds, you just get every show automatically, and you don't have to worry about what or what. And then it just happens for you. It's some sort of internet magic. You should check it out. We have the links in the show notes. You can find links to everything we talked about in the show notes as well, as well as multiple different editions, including audio and high-definition video of every single episode. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. 